It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. The Guy Benson Show Sunday Replay. The week's most interesting interviews with senators, commentators, and newsmakers. Giving you a replay just in case you missed it. The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. And joining us now here in studio is Bill Barr, former U.S. Attorney General under two different presidents, author of the book One Damn Thing After Another. We interviewed him for a full hour about that a couple of months ago. You can go look up that interview. I recommend it. I also recommend the book. It is one of the best D.C. memoirs that I've ever read, One Damn Thing After Another. And Mr. Attorney General, it's great to see you. Great to see you, Guy. Thanks for having me. There's so much happening. I want to start with last night and the president's speech in Philadelphia. I know a lot of conversation has been swirling about the optics of it, the red lighting, the Marines behind him, all of that. Then there's the substance of it, the choice to make that kind of speech as a president, especially one who ran on unity. Just curious how it struck you. I thought it was, uh, you know, not only uh, inflammatory, but it was... uh, uh, almost deranged for him to to do that. Um, it was a political speech that was even hot, maybe too hot for a democratic political convention. But to give that speech in front of the American people, flanked by U.S. Marines and stuff, and attacking the Republican Party that way was beyond the pale. Um, and it was full of lies. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the decisive. Uh, shift in American politics in the last few decades has been the radical shift of the Democratic Party to the left. And there's all kinds of empirical evidence showing that the Democrats have moved far to the left and the Republicans have basically stayed where they've been for the last 30 or 50 years. On policy, certainly. Yes, uh, yes, on policy, uh, which, uh, you know, is the most important aspect of it. And uh, it's the Democrats who are becoming increasingly intolerant and totalitarian. I mean, what are people's what threatens people's jobs and, and livelihood these days? It's not being woke enough. It's not adhering to the democratic progressive line. Things are worse today than they were under McCarthy and, and the Red Scare. And so the people with the totalitarian temper and the uh, extreme positions, positions that no, nobody except the fringe would have embraced you know, five years ago, you know, like CRT and transgenderism in the schools and so forth. You know, uh, now if you if you raise concerns about that, you're a fascist. So, I mean, I think the shift, I think the American people see really what's happened and they recognize this is a distraction from uh, Biden's failures. I think your point can be underscored about, because I think what some people would argue is the attacks on democracy or whatever he was talking about, it really goes or should go at least from his vantage point beyond policy, even though he conflated it, which was, I think, very dishonest, into election denial and that sort of thing. Of course, the Democrats have their own problem on that front as well. But on the policy front, the point that you just made, perhaps no one personifies that major shift more than Joe Biden. You look at Joe Biden as a U.S. senator or even as a vice president and what his positions were not that long ago, last decade, the decade before that, versus where he feels like he must be today to even be remotely viable as the leader of his party right now. And then you look at 
some long-serving Republican senator, right, who is been there for a long time, like Chuck Grassley, right? right? So look at Joe Biden versus Chuck Grassley and see which one and their voting record, which one looks markedly different today versus 15 years ago. It's not even close. That's right. That's a perfect uh, microcosm of what we're talking about. So the extremism has not come from the Republicans. And when you look at and, and looking at policy, what, what, what are the Republicans actually saying? They're saying we're trying to restore what's great about America and here are policies. Those policies are classic Republican policies. They're, they're consistent with Reagan Republicanism. Trump himself in March 2021 gave a speech at CPAC where he said, here's what Trumpism about, and he put down 10 or 12 items. They're all you know, consistent Republican positions, you know, secure borders, lower taxes and regulations to promote economic growth and so forth. Uh, but, you know, what he's trying to do is take the fact that Trump himself has such a, you know, bullying and, and uh, um, bombastic style that he opens himself up to the charge that he's an autocrat and, uh, and you know, he offends a lot of people. Uh, but and he you, crosses lines, too. Yeah, in my opinion, he crosses lines sometimes. Right. But not and, and, but in his administration— his policies were not semi-fascist. Right. His policies were were Republican policies, broadly supported by the Republican Party and by many, and probably at that yeah, stage and, and they by called, most they called George W. Bush, you know, the next Hitler back right. when he was president. Sure. And they're already calling DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, worse than Trump, right? Like, right. It's, it's the same game that they play. Right. Well, this has been going on as long as I've had political consciousness, which is there's no such thing as a conservative, according to the media. It's always an ultra conservative right, ultra MAGA right right so so what what you have is the the media the, the Democrats have never engaged in some substantive discussion since you know Watergate at least uh, but it's always just saying that the other side is an extremist we're not even going to engage with your arguments and the substance you're an extremist you're not in the mainstream that game has been played a long time but it's gotten to the point where we're not you know, we're not called extremists. We're now called fascists or semi-fascists. And then the words lose all meaning. Of course. And by the way, it actually reminded me, sparked a thought. There was, gosh, a number of years ago now, Chuck Schumer was leading some sort of press phone call, and he didn't realize that the press was already dialed in. Mm -hmm. it was, he thought it was just the Democrats. So he was sort of giving the marching orders before he thought the journalists were there. And one of the things that Schumer admitted in that context was, I always use the word extreme. Whatever they're doing, I always call it extreme. And he obviously felt like this was a successful strategy. That the journalist <laughs> right. would be like, oh, yes, let's go along with it. One journalist decided to blow the whistle that he was yeah. actually saying this stuff. And it's like, yeah, of course, we've seen it. It's, it's not a revelation for those of us paying attention, but it is sort of interesting seeing it coming from his mouth. Right. And, and let's talk about violence, okay? Political violence really, I mean, uh, started— Moving up, I, I would say, in 2016 election, when you had people beating up Trump supporters at Trump uh, rallies and so forth, there were five or six incidents in 2016. There was a bad one in Chicago, if I recall correctly. Right, and there was and there was some out in California yes. and some in Texas. It's Antifa. Right, and they and they were beating up people who were wearing red hats and so forth, and no one said peep. The Democrats didn't say peep about it. I don't, I don't you know. Uh, Actually, at, even at that time, I think Pelosi actually said something like, you know, violence doesn't have a place in it. 
in politics. I have to give her credit if I'm right about that. But um, but anyway, that started. The Democrats were largely quiet about it. And then, of course, we had uh, the summer of 2020. Okay. Now, let's one thing about the Republicans, when violence occurs, and both parties have nuts, nuts on the extreme and people who, you know, get carried away and do and engage in violence. The difference between the parties is the Republicans have instantaneously condemned it when it happens and have no com- compunction about that. Well, if it, they don't, they're hounded forever by the press. Right. But they do. And, and so uh, whenever there's violence, either side, they make clear that's beyond the pale. And, uh, you know, when Mitch McConnell went down into the well and McCarthy and so forth right after January 6th, you know, they were extremely uh, firm on, on that point. The Democrats, by and large, coddle violence, don't say anything about it. And I remember my hearing on July 28th, I think it was, 2020, before, the, you know, Nadler and the House Judiciary Committee, where I said, won't anyone here condemn the fact that people are night after night attacking a federal courthouse, trying to burn it down, attacking a small group of U.S. marshals who are trying to protect it, putting lasers in their eyes and stuff like that. Will anyone say that's wrong? And there was crickets. No one on, no Democrat said anything, refused to condemn. They all refused to condemn it. That's the difference between the parties on the, on the question of violence. And as we've mentioned on this show multiple times, Speaker Pelosi, whom you invoked a moment right. ago, she was asked a few weeks ago to condemn the series of terrorist bombings against pro-life centers, and she explicitly refused to do it. Right. She, in fact, defended abortion rights and said she will take no more questions beyond that on the subject. Right. Couldn't even lift a finger to pretend to be against firebombing. That's, that's very much in the character of the democratic reaction to violence. So, you know, I think, I think uh, the American people sh- shouldn't be fooled. I mean, the, the party that has moved to the extreme, the party that's conducting itself in an intemperate and, and totalitarian manner, uh, and the party that coddles people who engage in violence is the Democratic Party. Former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr, my guest, here in studio on The Guy Benson Show. More right after this. Stay with us. Halfway through today's Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for listening. With me here in studio is Bill Barr, former U.S. Attorney General, author of One Damn Thing After Another. And Mr. Attorney General, I do want to ask you about this whole Mar-a-Lago raid and the aftermath that we're sort of sifting through every single day. There are more people who seem to be coming out, experts and legal analysts, who are convinced in a way that they weren't before that the DOJ may in fact be moving toward an indictment of the former president. Reading between the lines, knowing everything that you know and your vast wealth of experience, you served as attorney general twice under two different presidents. What do you make of this whole episode broadly? Do you think that there's a real risk here that President Trump might get indicted? Yes, I, I do think there's a risk. I, I, as I see it, there are sort of three questions. The fir- Before we get to the three questions, let me say that I think as a legal matter, the search was a valid search, okay? But the first question is, even if it was a valid, was it was a search, was it a smart thing to do? Was it a reasonable thing to do? The second question is, is there technically a case uh, that could be made? And then the third is, even if a case could be made against Trump um, for illegally retaining the documents and deceiving the government, um, 
would it be prudent to bring it under the current circumstances, given that he's a former president, given the state of the nation? Those are the three questions. Um, it's looking more and more like uh, this, uh, that the case for justifying the search can be made. I, I was very reluctant to get out and talk about this until I knew more about the I facts. I remember. I texted you, <laughs> yeah. and you called me immediately. You said, please don't put me on the air. We yeah. don't know anything yet, but now yeah. we know more. Yeah, as we, as we know more, it looks like, uh, you know, this thing was not— it, it doesn't appear to me that this thing was driven by some, you know, rogue desire to just get the president at any cost. It was driven by the fact that a lot of classified information had been taken, missing. A lot of government documents had been taken. People talk, say it's an unprecedented search. Well, it's also unprecedented for a pre president to waltz off with, you know, scores of boxes, including cl highly classified information. So they were. it seems to me it was driven by the desire— primarily to figure out what that classified information was, how sensitive it was, and get a hold of it. That's what the driver here was. And it looks to me like they spent a year jawboning him without success. And then, and then when they purported to voluntarily cooperate, they, you know, they only gave a small fraction of what they had. And they said they had given everything. And then, but that was it. actually after the subpoena. So then they f get some information suggesting that wasn't everything. Right. So they go and get a subpoena, and they subpoenaed him. Then in, in June, they are given more, and that also turns out to be a, a relatively small fraction of what was there, and they appear to have gotten more information from other witnesses, probably at Mar-a-Lago, that there was some hanky-panky potentially going on there. And so that is what prompted the search. And I'm not sure what the objection to that is. At some point, they have to get the documents. They took almost two years to do it. And they did it only after they got some information about, about uh, obstructive activities. And in terms of the secrecy, you know, I don't think that these documents are Russiagate documents. I think they're more likely to be, uh, you know, run the gamut of uh, highly sensitive information relating to foreign policy and intelligence collection and other things like that. So at the end of the day, I said, look, we really have to wait to see two things before, before reaching a final judgment, which is what kind of information was this? And, and second, how how good is the information that the department probably has gotten out of Mar-a-Lago about deception? Was there active deception? Was the president involved in that? Uh, and how good is that information? And I feel that it, it, that they won't prosecute him unless they have very strong evidence. And if they do have strong evidence, I have I sort of agree with Andy McCarthy at this point that they may very well move ahead. Would that be, from a prudential judgment standpoint and a recent history standpoint, the right call to make? Because what I keep coming back to is I'm not interested, and I said this yesterday, I'm not interested in defending Trump on having these documents and he and his team or someone involved misleading the government about having more documents and all of that. I think it was reckless and bad and potentially a violation of the law. I also remember Hillary Clinton engaged in egregiously irresponsible, reckless behavior in a very similar vein. She's not a former president. She was secretary of state at the time, and they made a choice not to prosecute her despite de destroying evidence, lying about it, and all that kind of stuff. It just feels like, to me right now, to say we are going to prosecute this guy when we didn't prosecute her, I think 
that would not sit well with a lot of people, and it would further the argument, whether you agree or disagree, that there are two standards of justice in this country, one for people on the right, one for people on the left, and it's all politicized. I have trouble pushing back against that. Well, I agree that they're going to have to be able to distinguish it very clearly from the Hillary Clinton situation. Now, you know, uh, people have to remember that she she left being uh, Secretary of State six years before I arrived at the Department of Justice, and the people who made the call on that case were initially the uh, the Obama Justice Department. Right. And uh, I can't say that was a wrong call given uh, the quality of the evidence, and, and I also think that some the way they conducted the investigation was very deferential to her. And, that was crazy yeah, what they, and they let grant, her away with. They granted a lot of immunity. In exchange and, for basically nothing. And, yeah. Right, and, which means that once those people are granted immunity, it's very hard to you know to get more information out mm-hmm. of them. So the case was pretty well, uh, uh, well, it, it, was a, it was a spent <laughs> case at that point. And it was very hard to come in later and do anything, especially since the statute of limitations had run on most of that stuff. So, uh, but I agree that, the, you know, I think this shows the double standard, and I think there is a double standard. Uh, I think uh, some of it is conscious among, with some people and some is unconscious, but... Uh, I think they tend. They certainly have a lot of antipathy toward Trump, and they'll pursue him much more aggressively. But I think the Republicans are making a big mistake if they feel they have to continue to defend the indefensible. You know, like January six, and making you know that made the Republican that hurt the Republican Party, and people shouldn't be defending what happened there. And I feel the same about this. I also feel that you know Trump, and I said in my book. You know, Trump was more sinned against than sinning at, during during his president before the election of 2020, but that doesn't give him license to go out and do whatever, you know, he wants to do, do bad things himself and get away with it, and say, well, there's a double standard, you know. I mean, these people sinned against me, and then, I, you know, why can't I go out? And right, do that's bad not things? that's not a defense on the merits, right? It, but it is a relative point. Yes. about what the standards are. And I think, at least in my mind, I want to separate those two issues out. Right. I want to come back, because you said you arrived, what, six years after the Hillary stuff all went down. Without getting into specifics that you might not be able to, just looking at this from a big picture, something that you realize could be politically explosive lands on your desk as attorney general. There's an election coming up, or maybe not. What is, the, in your mind, the appropriate process for how to handle that in a political environment like this. What is the right way to do it? What's the wrong way to do it? What do you make of the job Merrick Garland has been doing on this particular saga? So as I say, I think the way I approach these kinds of cases was to say, first of all, uh, is there a case to be made? That is, do we have enough evidence to prove the case? that we feel we we would prevail beyond a reasonable doubt that the person committed a crime. That's step one. And uh, in that, you know, I got people who were experienced prosecutors who I assessed were were not partisan either way, were very professional, uh, spent a lot of time going back over the case and so forth. And they made their recommendation as to the 
the evidence and all the problems that would arise and the difficulties of actually trying to prove things. And people have to remember, for example, that this email system was, was designed and intended for non-classified stuff. Uh, and uh, I'm aware of some of the classified stuff that went over it. Uh, and, uh, you know, the president at that time, it, 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 the president went back and forth on this. You know, at some points he said to me, didn't, uh, before I took the job, he said he didn't think Hillary Clinton should be prosecuted because we'd look like a banana republic and so forth. And then as people continued to attack him, he took a more severe uh, position. But, uh, you know, there were times where he publicly would call for it based on the fact that there was like a little C in parentheses and by a paragraph on mm -hmm. something that was centered that meant confidential. So he was applying a very strict standard, like if there's any classified information, you should indict. You know, that's what he was, his public posture was, same on Comey. So I would just say that the standard he was taking publicly at that point would mean that he would be indicted today. Mm -hmm. uh, and but she was not. She was not uh, because uh, at the end of the day, you have to show a certain intent. And, uh, and, uh, my, my theory of the intent was setting up a private server that you weren't allowed to have, sending classified information on it, deleting all of it, and then lying that there was ever classified stuff. Right. To me, that is mens rea. We're now arguing about something that was, right. you know, years well, ago. I, I'm just sort of wondering, you know, how you think through the political implications sometimes of this stuff. Like, what effect it would have okay. on the country? So I was going to say, so it was not a clean, my assess, my, my view of it was that it was not a particularly uh, 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 I'm not sure we, we would have met the first standard. But again, I came in six years later and a lot of the evidence was already taken, locked in. People were locked into various positions. People had been given immunity. So I'm not, I, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't as clean as a lot of people on the outside like to think, oh, you know, clearly she wrote the law. But as I said, the next step is then say, okay, is this the kind of case we should prosecute? Should. Should. Right, this is discretion. Right. This is discretion, exercise of discretion. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I had to think about the precedent it would set. Uh, the chilling effect it would have uh, down the road on, on, you know, certain legitimate conduct, uh, and also what it would do to the body politic, essentially, uh, and what it would do to, you know, looking ahead and trying to get things done uh, in the present administration. So you, you consider all of that as to whether or not, as a prudential matter, it's a wise thing to do. There are a few more topics I want to get to. We'll do that next with former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr on The Guy Benson Show. It is The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for being here. My guest here in studio is Bill Barr, the former U.S. Attorney General. His book is One Damn Thing After Another, which I think is just terrific. And we've covered a lot. We've covered already the president's speech last night, which... Attorney General Barr called inflammatory and deranged and full of lies. You can go back and hear that on the podcast if you missed it. We also talked about the Mar-a-Lago raid and the DOJ process here and a possible indictment of former President Trump. Now I want to turn to a few other unrelated topics, the border crisis, the fentanyl crisis, crime. These are things that you wrote about in your book, One Damn Thing After Another. 
didn't get as much attention for some reason right. as, as all the Trump stuff, which is more juicy to the press. But these crises continue. Mm -hmm. They are in some ways worse than ever. And I'm curious, when you hear the administration come out basically day after day and insist the border is closed and secure, I mean, is that – to me it's just insulting, but – it's their job to enforce the law. They're making a choice not to. Does that fall beyond any sort of appropriate discretion, to use the word that we were talking about a moment ago? Oh, yeah. That's not – to me, that that is not a question of uh, prosecutorial discretion. I, th th at some point, you have to draw the line between making individual determinations in specific cases and saying, you know, this case doesn't make sense to bring or, you know, the, the adverse consequences of bringing this case case outweigh any benefit of bringing the case. Uh, and then taking a whole swath of law, a whole area of law, and just say, we're, we're just not going to enforce this whole area. Like of a non-enforcement right, policy. Right. And uh, that, that I don't feel is legitimate exercise. And finally, President Biden's announcement that he is going to, quote unquote, forgive $10,000 worth of uh, student loan debt to a certain swath of Americans, a small group of Americans, I should point out. I know that there are plans to challenge that in court. I've seen even some of the defenders of the policy admitting that they think it's probably illegal yeah. and wouldn't withstand scrutiny. Do you think that was a lawless action? Absolutely. I think it was clearly illegal. I think the, the statutes, the statute that they rely on, the HEROES Act, which was passed, basically the, the driver of that statute was so that when troops go overseas to serve and fight in the, the war against terrorism at that point, 2003, and in Iraq and Afghanistan, that, you know, their loans were paused, right? Paused for, for people to go into battle uh, and, and so forth. Now, uh, the other thing that's very clear under that statute, it was expanded to uh, uh, national emergencies, but like war, but the key thing there is what the what the secretary is allowed to do is make sure the person is no worse off as a result of the emergency and to try to uh, to relieve any extra burden that the person that the that the emergency puts on uh, the borrower, which means pause the loan during the emergency because if you forgive the loan, you're putting them in a better position mm -hmm. than they were in. You're not keeping them, um, you know, you're, you're not preventing them from being hurt further. You are putting them in a better position than they would have been. So wiping out the loan goes beyond the plain meaning of the statute. The statute says it has to be necessary uh, to protect them from the uh, any effect that the emergency has had. And that you can deal with by stretching out the loan. Today, 2000, you know, where we are today, COVID, this was done on the basis of COVID. You know, people have their jobs back. They're making income again. If anything, there's a labor shortage in the United States. People have had time to catch up. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to me that just eliminating the loans addresses any impact that COVID had on these individuals. And it's going to cost hundreds of billions of dollars. And the power of the purse is with Congress. This was right. not what Congress passed. And so, you know, we're already seeing, I saw Washington Post journalists saying, well, imagine telling all these people the beneficiaries. 
that all of a sudden it's going away. What a politically toxic thing it will be for the Republicans in terms of just rooting for that political interest. And of course, there's another side to that, which is forcing a bunch of people who've done the right thing or didn't ever go to college right. to pay you know, for lawyers and doctors to have part of their loans forgiven because the Democrats have some you know, election year scheme that they want to throw out there. Right. We've got to leave it there for now. Always enjoy these conversations with Bill Barr, former U.S. Attorney General under President George H.W. Bush and then under President Trump as well. His book is One Damn Thing After Another, which I strongly recommend. It is great to see you, Bill. Have a great long weekend. Thank you. And the final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up straight after this. Julie Banderas joins us next. That was this week's edition of The Guy Benson Show Sunday Replay. For more Guy Benson Show, go to GuyBensonShow.com or wherever you get your podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.